In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I know it's uh, not lost on you. You've heard your share of articles or seen your your share of of, uh, television programs about the state of today's college campus. What's really going on there? What's with all the hazing? No. Um, What's with, is it, is it, has, has the academy just simply become the bastion of this or that ideological persuasion? Um, has education devolved into one ideology battling with another? Is it, is it all about justice? Is it all about progress? Is it about capitalism? Is it about fairness? What's it all to do? And it's so, you know, people are bemoaning the state of the campus that perhaps it's lost its way. It's lost its plot. And, we hear that, and, and if you think that's a news discussion, you're wrong. Um, this discussion is as old as there are institutions, I think. Um, in fact, uh, it was back in the 1950s that J.D. Salinger wrote a, a short story that um, when I was in high school, you had to read Catcher in the Rye. Anybody ever have to read Catcher in the Rye? Yeah, Holden Caulfield? Yeah, on the college applications. Who, what figure of literature do you most identify with? Obviously, Holden Caulfield. Well, he wrote another story called Franny and Zoe. Uh, it's about uh, a brother and sister in 1950s Manhattan. Franny is a college student. Zoe is her older brother. And uh, she comes home from college sort of lamenting the state of the university. And uh, as she uh, sort of laments to her brother Zoe, she says these words. I don't think it would have all got me quite so down if just once in a while, just once in a while, there was at least some polite little perfunctory implication that knowledge should lead to wisdom. And that if it doesn't, it's just a disgusting waste of time. But there never is. You never even hear any hints dropped on campus that wisdom is supposed to be the goal of knowledge. You hardly even hear the word wisdom mentioned. you got to wonder if that conversation is happening anywhere on college campuses today. I don't know. haven't been there recently. But what an astute observation that Franny makes in that short story. That maybe knowledge for all of its benefit is actually subservient to a greater goal like wisdom. And as you hear Tanya mentioned at the beginning of our worship, we're, we're starting a new series today. We're going to listen out for what it means to live by wisdom. And we're going to look at that one book of the Old Testament that is the most highly concentrated conversation about what wisdom is. And that's the book of Proverbs. It is an enigmatic book. It is a thick book. It is full of little pithy aphorisms and then long, flowing little discourses on, on a really evocative imagery. So it's, it's full of stuff. It's good stuff. But uh, ultimately, it's trying to tell us what is wisdom. We're going to look at just the first seven verses this morning. We're going to consider what is the purpose of the Proverbs? What's the point? But then we're also going to figure out what is the key to its benefit? What is its purpose? What is the key to its benefit? So that when we get to the end of the sermon and we ordain and commission elders and deacons and deaconesses, you will have a context for what we're about to do. If you're able, we're going to read the first seven verses of chapter 1. So if you can, stand. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. 
to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the heartening word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. What's the point of the Proverbs? You heard that sort of litany of things about what they're trying to get out there. What's the point, right? And it's kind of summarized by what you heard there in verse 4, to bring prudence to the simple. Congratulations. We're all simple. The Proverbs is here to bring us prudence, to bring us wisdom. And if you want to you put that in, in context, you might say that the point of the Proverbs is to mature us, to bring to us to maturity. Everything outside right now that is organic is looking up and going, thank you for the rain. Because encoded into it is this sense of what it will mean for it to flourish. And therefore, what it needs for flourishing is rain, sunlight, oxygen, all that good stuff. It is meant to grow. It is meant to mature. So are you. And the Proverbs are out to mature us. So what is that maturity, though? Maturity is this wonderfully abstract thing. What does it look like? What does it mean to be mature by way of the Proverbs? It's two things. It's, first of all, to have a sense of the nature of wisdom. The nature of wisdom. I mean, wisdom, none of us are going to go, yeah, I really don't want to be wise. I'm trying to cut down on that. It's against my religion. Nobody says that. They want to be wise. But what's the nature of wisdom? I think it's three things. It's, first of all, having truth at hand. Readily there. At your fingertips. Um, Proverbs 15.6 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, my first inclination, when somebody brings a curt upset, brusque, brazen word at me, my first instinct is to meet them eye to eye. It's not to offer a soft answer. It's to bring a harsh word. But that knowledge has to be at hand so that I don't follow my first inclination. It has to be right there. Not just sort of stuck away in some file. And you and I, in this, in this glut of information that we can always just sort of look up on Google or look up on Wikipedia and then file it away and forget it, that's, that's a kind of knowledge, but that's not what wisdom is. It's, it's having truth that's at your fingertips. Um, my, my firstborn son uh, turns 15 tomorrow. Right? Right? I have to teach him to drive now. Okay. Okay. But over the dinner table over the weekend, we, we were all, sorry, Christy and I were the only ones present at his birth. Um, we're, we were recalling the moment on the day he was born. And my wife um, avidly remembered um, that as she was being well, uh, rolled into the OR to have the C-section, um, the, the anesthesiologist was about to give her an epidural because that's what you do when you have a C-section, right? You don't want to just push, right? Um, um, but as she looked at the anesthesiologist, she said to him, have you ever done this before? <laughs> at which point the anesthesiologist said, I've read books. Ha, 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 He's joking, right? Right? Yes, he's being mischievous in the moment. He has done this before, but he likes to be funny. If he had said, I've only read books, then it's the, the wisdom, the truth's not at his fingertips. It's not at hand. 
He's got to be able to do this in his sleep. He's got to be able to have this, do this with his eyes closed, even though we wanted his eyes open while he did that. That's, that's truth at hand. That's, that's the nature of wisdom. But it's, it's not just truth at hand. It's not just sort of able to recall it. It's, it's truth applied. It's this idea that you, you know how to take like sort of broad concepts and, and fit them into the moment. Um, next week, uh, in, in conjunction with our, our local outreach fair, we're going to listen to what the Proverbs say about how to be wise in caring for the poor. And in chapter 19 of the Proverbs, it says, He who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his work. Now, sounds like we're supposed to be generous to the poor. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I go to the homeless shelter and start throwing out wads of cash? That's one way. Is it the wise way? Is that really how you apply that truth? It's open for conversation. It's open for wrestling. It's open for deliberation. So wisdom is not simply just sort of taking it on its face value and just going, boing, of course I know how to do it. It's truth applied in a particular way, in a careful way, in a wise way. That's the nature of wisdom. Rachel Den Hollander is a name I, I, reckon, or I, I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago on Easter. Um, you may know her name as one of those women who was abused by that doctor at MSU who uh, also worked for the United States Olympic, the gymnastics team, and she gave a victim impact statement. She, she gave a talk last week at Harvard before the Veritas Forum asking the question, can forgiveness and justice ever be reconciled? Can forgiveness and justice ever go together? And in the, in the midst of that conversation, she said this, concepts of forgiveness and justice are often misunderstood. When you don't understand something well, you don't apply it well. And if you don't apply truth well, the result is incredibly damaging. None of us in this room are going to shake our heads at the idea of forgiveness. None of us in this room are going to say, justice, uh, I'm not really sure that's important. We're all going to nod. But do you think that you can know exactly how to apply forgiveness and justice by just hearing that forgiveness and justice are virtues? No. Those are concepts that have to be applied in a careful way. Wisdom is not just having truth at hand to be able to recall. It's knowing how to apply that truth. The nature of wisdom is truth truth at hand. It's truth applied, but it's also truth at hand applied in context. With a certain timeliness. With a certain manner of doing things. Um, Another story from my children, which is probably accustomed to other children you've ever, familiar with other children you've ever been in the, in the presence of, but um, they like to invoke principles, invoke certain virtues like laws, so long as it applies to someone else, right? So, for instance, uh, they will remind us, should one of their siblings be whining, one of them will say, now, isn't it true that when you are whining, you don't get what you want, Right? Right. They're not taking into consideration a whole set of other circumstances that we as parents must in order to know what's the most appropriate response in that moment. Every aspect, every demonstration of truth, every manifestation of truth has to, has to be worked through a grid, worked through a set of other variables and concerns so that you know how to apply that truth in context. That's wisdom. So when you get to chapter 22 of Proverbs and you hear it said, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. Now, before you get your knickers in a wad there, is that a, did I just say that? Um, 
is that a metaphor? Is that a, is that a real concrete thing? It's talk, that's worthy of conversation. But if you're a parent, you're a teacher, you know that discipline has a place and a time, but that every moment does not call for discipline. Sometimes it just calls for compassion and just hugging them. So you have to, the, 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 those who can, that edited these proverbs and put them together are saying, look, you gotta wrestle with this. And you might not just jump to conclusions. You gotta go with it that way. That's the nature of wisdom. Truth at hand, truth applied, truth in context. It's its nature. If you want to understand the, pro- the purpose of the Proverbs, it's to get to us that nature of wisdom. But not just to understand a sense of its nature. It's also to help us be receptive. To be receptive to what we find. So you heard in verse 3, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. It's having an openness to what wisdom has for us. The definition of a fool from the beginning to the end of the Proverbs is not someone who merely makes mistakes. It is someone who is resistant to outside counsel. It is someone who will not entertain further thought. That's your fool. And that's why he interrupts us almost in verse 5 when he says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. In other words, look, if you're wise, great, there's more to learn. Kids, you're young. You can be wise beyond your years by just realizing that you don't know as much as you think you do and that you really do need people to speak into your lives to help you make sense of things. That's not being silly. That's not being childish. That's being wise. But you older folks who have been around the block a few times, if you think that you know it all, you don't. And in fact, sometimes our kids have to teach us stuff. And therefore, true wisdom is having a receptivity to receiving it at any point, at whatever age, in whatever circumstance. That's wisdom. You have to be receptive to it, but you also have to cultivate an ear for it. You have to be able to discern it when you hear it. You gotta hear it over and over again. Um, treasury agents who work for the Secret Service, they who are tasked with knowing what is counterfeit money, they don't study counterfeit money. They just study the genuine article. They only look at the real thing, such that when they see the thing that's not that thing, they go, that's not it. That's clearly not it. Wisdom is that which we run through our brains over and over again so that we cultivate a receptivity to it, an understanding of it, so that we get it over time, so that when we see its opposite, that ain't wisdom. When he says in verse 6, to understand the proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, He's intentionally sort of telegraphing to us this. When you read the Proverbs, you're going to hear stuff and go, what? Why? How? There are riddles. There are things that will not be immediately accessible to us. There are some things in there that are probably only accessible to those who wrote it. The Proverbs are going to present to us any number of paradoxes. And if you jump on the fact that, oh, Look, contradiction, can't go there, doesn't, doesn't work, I'll, I'll discard it. You're, you've lost your ability to cultivate wisdom. Cause stuff's gonna come your way, and they're both gonna be true, but you have to realize that. And, and the, and the classic example of that in the Proverbs is in chapter 26, where two verses next to each other sound like this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly. Lest to be wise in his own eyes. 
What? Which is it? It's both. Different moments call for different responses. That's wisdom. You don't totalize the virtues into a particular every certain circumstance. Some things require a set of considerations that you don't want to, um, you have to take into consideration. I, I had the privilege this week of, of uh, making a new acquaintance um, at a coffee shop in West Asheville, which made me thankful to be your pastor in the sense that I got, as part of my role, I get to be out in the world and to meet people and to engage them in conversation and to, to listen to them and to discover them and to be thrilled by what they do. And so this guy sits down next to me and on his table he's got a book that's called The Joy of Parenting. And I say, I would like joy in parenting. <clears throat> Which provoked this wonderful like 45-minute conversation where he told me about what he does. He's, he's uh, sort of synonymous with a child psychologist and, and he works with uh, kids that suffer from various conditions and, and are at-risk situations. And he just tells me about um, how the words we use actually sort of narrate our existence. And so you've got to be very careful in the words you choose. And I go, I've heard that before. Yeah. And so we just start comparing notes. And eventually I say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, really? Right. And the conversation kept going. It was great. Um, but in the midst of it, um, where we just kind of shared part of our stories, our vocations and our lives, he was, um, he was vulnerable enough to tell me part of his story. Uh, that he grew up in an alcoholic household. His father was an alcoholic. And his father abused him mightily. And it hardened him. As we might understand it might. But he said that there came a point when one day he's sitting in a room with his father. It's late at night. And he has this conception of his father as an alcoholic and an abuser, which he is, which he did. But he watches his father pick up a guitar. And he's listening to music. And his father just sort of starts playing guitar lightly along with the music. And then he notices his father start to weep. And in that moment, this guy has this sort of epiphany about his daddy. He says, as he told me, that in that moment he realized that his father was once a boy. And therefore, a person with a story. Which kind of goes to that saying that you might have heard, be kind to everyone you meet, for everybody you're meeting is fighting a hard battle. It doesn't mitigate or diminish in the least what his father had done to him. It doesn't exonerate or excuse any of the abuse he poured upon him. But in that moment... He was reflective enough to allow some new information to come into his world and to help him to see his world with a more richness, with a greater robustness, a greater profundity. That's wisdom, folks. That's cultivating an ability to see wisdom. But you have to extend yourself into sort of a posture of attentiveness if you're going to get the wisdom from what you find in the Proverbs. Now, that all sounds great. Yay, wisdom. But what... How does it look? I mean, it's just so out there and abstract. I get it. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why. Because you and I have a problem. And here's our problem. You and I tend to reduce our lives to a series of accomplishments or attainments or possessions. Um, Get a degree. Um, Find a spouse. Um, Get a job and a promotion. Um, Set aside retirement great, we aspire to those things. None of them in and of themselves are inherently problematic. It's okay. It's not nothing wrong with aspiring to that. Here's the thing, though. You and I begin to define ourselves, to find our stability in, to measure ourselves by those attainments. Here's the reality of it, though. Okay, fine, you get the degree. You can still be a degreed idiot 
you can still be a married lecher. You can still get a promotion and act with the utmost lack of integrity. And you can have set aside a wonderful nest egg for yourself, but be a retired spendthrift. In which case, all you are is back to where Franny was lamenting at the beginning of the sermon. Where's the wisdom? Where's the wisdom in any of those attainments? You and I put so much stock in them, and yet we depend too much on them, such that when we lose them, we ourselves are lost. Or if we never gain them, we find ourselves, we never find ourselves. But wisdom is content with them and not inebriated by them, but wisdom is also content without them. I was in Earth Fair this week, which I think I'm going to rename as Earth Dare, because they dare you to find a discounted price. Am I right? Don't get me started. I'm in the checkout line, and I see this little greeting card. The sign of wisdom is a continual cheerfulness. Now, there's all sorts of questions this picture raises. Why is this man in a, in a hole like that, right? Why is he still wearing his hat? Why, why is the person behind him not rendering him aid? Why are the children not taking an opportunity to practice their soccer skills? You read that and you go, oh, how sweet. Oh, how saccharine. Oh, how pathetic. Are you kidding me? If you can be continually cheerful, you found something. If you find yourself stuck in a manhole or whatever and you can still be cheerful, you found something. That's not nuts. The question is then, how do we live with a continual cheerfulness whether we ever get any of those attainments or none? The Proverbs offers us not only the purpose behind them, but the key to their benefit, such that this might actually become true for us. And it's what it's found in verse 7. Here's the key to the benefit of the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Key phrase, fear of the Lord. If you're around here much, you've heard it before. You read any part of the Bible, you will bump into that phrase a lot of times, and especially in the book of the Proverbs. What does it mean? Don't take it at face value. Fear of the Lord in some ways means fear means fear. Like, you don't approach God with a certain casualness about yourself. The, the reason, if you are wondering, why is it that we stand for a reading from the Bible is because we think those are important words. Why do we stand before the President of the United States, even if we should despise him? Because we respect, we, we respect the office. We revere the office. We understand what it's responsible for. Why do we stand during worship? Because we believe God is worthy of that attentiveness. Fear, in sense, means fear. Jesus is not your homeboy. But fear is more than just an abject cowering in the corner, like, I'm just terrified of you. It's not that, because if you look through the entirety of Scripture, there's too many instances of people dancing before the Lord, of being delighted in Him, of believing that He rejoices over them. That's not the, oh, stay away! It's something else. It's a richer kind of thing. That's the fear of the Lord. You've got to bring all of that rejoicing and delighting and wondrousness alongside this idea of, I will not treat you with a casualness that you do not deserve. Those two things got to go together. And so the closest thing to an illustration that I could come up with that I may have shared with you before is um, I never got to see a shuttle launch. 
Someday, maybe I'll get to go to Cape Canaveral and watch Elon Musk fire up his Orion Heavy. But um, look, um, and I will, I will weep before that. I wept watching Apollo 13, watching the CGI launch of Apollo 13. Why? Because of the power there. Because of the majesty there that I can't even put my finger on. But look, if I go to a heavy launch, if I'm within 100 yards of that, I will be incinerated. But as long as I'm at a safe distance, I dare not look away. Because you are being witness to something that is so powerful that you can't look away. You don't want to get too close because you'll, ugh, it's too much. But you, you can't miss it. You, when it comes to the fear of the Lord, that's your picture. That's your sense of, I, I, I dare not offend you, but I dare not be separated from you either. And so John Calvin, early in his magisterial work on the Institutes, puts it like this. This wisdom restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread of punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father. Even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending him. He's making a distinction in two kinds of fear that was later enunciated by another reformer whose name is uh, Ursinus, Zacharias Ursinus. He talked about two kinds of fear, a servile fear and a filial fear. A servile fear is this kind of like what is a... Uh, a servant to his master, um, an employee to his boss, in which the only kind of really respect they have for that person, the only kind of fear they have them is just fear of the punishment that they'll get if they end up getting out of line. That's as far as the respect goes. That's a servile fear. That's not what Calvin's talking about. He's talking about a filial fear, which you already know what that is because you have friends or you have a spouse or you have a parent. A filial fear is that kind of fear where your love and respect for them is so strong that you would, as Calvin puts it, shudder at offending them because you don't want to besmirch this thing that is between you and them. You don't want to desecrate it. If you're in a wonderful, crystal clear blue lagoon, if you had a can of motor oil, what would restrain you from pouring it into that motor, into that lagoon? You could say, I just don't want to be afraid of being fined. That's a servile fear. But you could be afraid of doing it because you don't want to besmirch the beauty therein. That's a filial fear. And that's the kind of the fear of the Lord that we have to have. Why do we have to have that kind of fear? I'll tell you why. Because some of you may already know the Proverbs really well. Some of you may have sought to memorize them. Some of you may know them from front to back, like our Hasidic Jewish friends do, memorized. And some of you may have labored for decades to obey them, and it didn't work. You may have done everything you knew to do that was right for your kid, and they may still be estranged from you. You may have done everything you could to honor and cherish your spouse, and they might have still cheated on you. You might have done everything you could to live above board in your work, doing everything with the utmost integrity, and somebody could have still defrauded you. And in moments like that, you think, I did what it said, and it didn't bear fruit. What then? Do you close the book and say, sorry, I'm done? No. Why we have to have the fear of the Lord is this. 
Because that's the heart he wants for us. Because if you only came to his wisdom so that it would bear fruit for your own existence, then you were doing that for you, but not for him. And the real fear of the Lord that he means to have for us all is that, yes, we would rightly rejoice in seeing the fruit born from our obedience to what he finds in the way of wisdom. But even if that doesn't pan out, we might simply be satisfied with the knowledge that we have done what is pleasing in this sight by trusting him with what he's told us. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's where you're coming to this wisdom in a proper way. Because here's the nature of the Proverbs. They're pithy. They're vivid. But they're not formulas. This is not a chemical reaction. Add this, add this, and you get this. It's proven. It's tried. It's true. It's full of knowledge and virtue and wisdom and experience. But when you have the fear of the Lord, you realize that you're doing it to please Him. And maybe by His grace, you will actually bear fruit as a consequence thereof. And maybe some of you are thinking like that, you know what, I can't do that. I'm going to need to know this is going to work before I'm going to make myself vulnerable before what it asks. I don't have the strength to give myself under the wisdom it asks me to walk into, to live into. I, I can't do that. I don't have the strength for that unless I know it's going to work. At which point I would say to you, I know that. You don't have the strength. It is not in you by sheer dint of will to be able to enact what you find in here and be able to do it consistently or abidingly or cheerfully. You need to see something in order to be inspired to stay in this even when it doesn't bear the fruit that you thought it would. And therefore, I know it will not be a shock to you to hear from me, your pastor, to say, you and I must see the one in whom wisdom was incarnate. You and I must come to grasp the one who is the perfect embodiment of wisdom, i.e. Jesus, of whom it is said in Luke chapter 2 that when he was growing up, he grew in what? In wisdom and in stature. Of whom it was said by the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. In Jesus, if you will simply look at him, you will see what is contained in the Proverbs with great clarity and vividness. He's our wisdom. We look to him for that, that we might then be inspired to continue in the way of wisdom we find in the Proverbs. He is our example of wisdom, but he is more than our example. He has to be more than our example. Because if he could just be an example for us, that whole thing was a real waste of effort. And that's why if you were here on Easter, you heard Paul say at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, that we are God's because of him, and we are in Christ Jesus, who became for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, which are those big highfalutin theological words that could just be summarized by what you find in Proverbs chapter 16, when it says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. What the person who penned that word and what the person who edited that word into the book never knew or could never have seen was the idea that God himself, 
would act with steadfastness and faithfulness to turn away iniquity and atone for sin by his own son's blood. And it's by that that he becomes our wisdom. In him we take refuge for what he did unto us. And when we see that, we have a fear of the Lord that makes us want to turn from evil. And that when we do turn unto evil, we lament that we did and we're diminished by it and we want to be back, not turning unto evil any further. You have to see Jesus as the embodiment, the example of our wisdom, but also the very source of it. You have to take refuge in him. There is an irony in that moment that I read to you from Franny and Zoe. Franny, as I heard, as you said, as I, as you heard me say, was lamenting the absence of wisdom on college campuses. And who's she telling it to? Her older brother. And what's her older brother's name? Zoe. What does Zoe mean? In Greek, it means life. She's turning to her older brother to find consolation. She's turning to her older brother to find wisdom. She's turning to her older brother to find a little life. She's taking refuge in Zoe, in life, so that she knows what it means to be wise. That's the deal, folks. Here's the gospel. If you take refuge in Jesus, you are rescued from two things. From coming to what you find in the Proverbs as simply pragmatic ways of acting, that it's true because it will work. Guess what, folks? Sometimes it won't work. Will you abide anyway? Yes, Jesus will rescue you from that temptation. He will also rescue you from thinking this. From thinking that you will only find his favor if you act with the wisdom that he sets before you. That is not it. Your favor from God comes to you from what he did, not from what you do, or no, nor how wisely you act. And therefore, the gospel of wisdom is this, that you live into wisdom when you know that wisdom has been shown to you in the Son. You take refuge in Him, you take refuge in life, so that you come to the knowledge of wisdom with the right set of eyes. Two takeaways. Here they are. What do we do with all this? What do we do for these next few months in the Proverbs? Let me suggest to you a plan if you don't already have one. And if you've got your own plan for reading, great. If you need a plan, how's this? Read a chapter every day in the Proverbs. You can. Um, the first nine chapters are kind of like making a case for wisdom on itself. And then when you get to around verse 10, or chapter 10, it's kind of like the editor of Proverbs decided he was going to play a game of 52-card pickup. Um, he, he just took all the Proverbs and just sort of threw them all up in the air and then put them all together and said, Ha! There's no rhyme or reason to why this verb, this text goes against this text. So please don't go all Da Vinci Code on me here and try to find a certain sort of, uh, oh, 15 verses next to verse 16 because of this. No, it's not really. Read a chapter a day. And then go back to the verses that made you go, what? Or the verses that made you go, hmm. And just sit with it. Wrestle with it. Figure out what it meaning might be. Imagine what it might look like to depict that in some form of story or, or verse or poem or something like that. Figure out a way to encapsulate. That's the one takeaway. Here's the second. And it has everything to do with what we're about to do with elders, deacons, and deaconesses. Their gig, that they're about to sign on the dotted line for, so to speak, is to help us all grow in maturity. <laughs> Surprise. What? Your privilege... Your right is to approach the elders of this church and say, 
Here's the issue I'm facing. What is wise in my response right now? The deacons of this church, the deaconesses of this church, are tasked with this responsibility to coordinate the actions of mercy both within and beyond our congregation and to instill us and marshal us all in that same work. You're right. Your privilege is to go to deacons and deaconesses and say about this matter of mercy, what's wise? You have that privilege. You have that right. That's the nature of wisdom. And then to that calling, we give ourselves for the next several months. Let's pray. I give you thanks that you have not concealed yourself and that you have invited us to wrestle with you. And I would pray that you might help us all to wrestle well and to find nuggets of gold and know what it means to act with great clarity and wisdom in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.